Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. The admonition or the exhortation, as it were, is to be a Berean. Now, you may need to follow along and stay with me so you understand what a Berean is. Uh, unless you already have read this and studied it and, and know, but it's going to take a few verses and, uh, to get there. But uh, it is an important thing for us to understand what, what that is to be. As, as a believer in Jesus Christ. But we'll get there in, a, in, in, in just a moment. But our reading for this morning is, is found in verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. And so, as we do every Sunday morning, we want to stand, if we are able, and uh, read together these verses out loud. Acts 17, verses 1 through 4. You'll find a couple of places here uh, that may seem a little hard to... Uh, pronounce, uh, don't worry. Uh, it's Amphipolis, Apollonia, and Thessalonica. Okay, now you have the lesson. Now you can read it with me. <laughs> Verse 1, let's read. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Shall we pray? Father, we pray for the blessing and the anointing and outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon each and every person, Lord, in this room today, that we, Lord God, may attain and retain the wisdom of your word and to have that understanding, Lord, as to apply to our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, to know your word, to live your word to express your word, and to be passionate, Lord, about your word. It is our desire to have that kind of heart, that kind of, of, of testimony, so that this world in these last days will hear the precious message and the good news of Jesus Christ. Strengthen us, grant us your wisdom and your grace to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Y'all may be seated. Now, one of our objectives in our study of the book of Acts, though still uh, unspoken until now, is to observe how the Apostle Paul confronted and dealt with the various kinds of problems that arise in the work on the mission field. The problems that arise in missionary endeavors. We saw in our last study how Paul had handled the problem of slavery in his dealings with the possessed slave girl. Certainly a tremendous evil even in that culture and society, although slavery was a widely accepted social practice in the Roman world. We notice that, that Paul did not approach this person immediately because a slave was 
one who belonged to someone else. And so there were certain situations that uh, were respected, but of course, when it was time for him to speak, he did. And of course, you'll, you'll, you'll remember what we, we saw last time. But uh, a question that we need to ask here about this thought is, is this. How does the church... How does the church confront the evils of society? How does the church confront the evils of society? And we have to ask another question. What is the Bible's answer to social injustice? What is the Bible's answer? And in particular, what is the New Testament answer to social injustice? You see, it is of great importance to note the surprising significance in the fact that Paul made no attempt to change society. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying. Paul made no attempt to change society. His work, his passion, his desire was to change people. It was to change hearts. It was to change lives. You see, he didn't use his Roman citizenship. If you remember last time again, his Roman citizenship comes up, but it doesn't come up until much later. He doesn't use it before he's persecuted. Had he mentioned it, he wouldn't have been persecuted at all last time. So he doesn't use his Roman citizenship. He doesn't use his influence with people. He doesn't use the power of his pen or his ability to get people to give their hard-earned money to a noble cause to accomplish social changes. He didn't run for political office or cultivate those in positions of power. Though all these things may not be a bad thing. Nonetheless, he didn't do this. He did none of the things that activists of our times consider to be part of the Christian program today. Now, Roman society had plenty of ills. Roman society had plenty of gross injustices and many deliberate and and horrible inequalities and inequities. But what did the Apostle Paul do? What did he do? Very simply, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul did. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. His task was to win men and women to Christ. His passion, his desire was to win people to Jesus. And you see, this truism continues to bear relevance. And it is this. When enough people get saved, the conscience of society is awakened and social reforms follow. Let me say that again. When enough people get saved, the conscience of society is awakened and social reforms follow. Think of the great revivals that have taken place over the many years, over the thousands of years of Christian history. The great revivals in the preaching of the gospel and the word of God by the leading of the Holy Spirit would always result in the cleaning up of society. It would always result in the cleaning up of cities and towns. It wasn't that they went into these places and destroyed uh, bars and saloons and, and nightclubs and whatnot. It was in reaching people who went to all of these places when their hearts were chased to Jesus Christ. There were so many in great revivals that were affected that they never went back to these places. They would close down. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see. Paul would later write for us, or or, uh, would later write to uh, the church, and for us all, the job description of God's children. The job description of every believer in Jesus Christ. The job description is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 24. 
He says, first of all, he asks the questions, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The foolishness of the message preached. Foolishness to whom? To those who didn't believe. But notice what it goes on to say. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we, he says, and notice this, this is our job description. He says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is our job description. He doesn't say, I preach Christ crucified. He says, we do. We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. As we'll see today. It was a tremendous stumbling block to the Jews that he, that he meets in Thessalonica. To the Greeks, foolishness. As we'll find out next time when we read about Paul in Athens. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Because of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And as we enter into chapter 17, Paul continues on in his second missionary journey, this time with Luke staying behind in Philippi to care for the young church there. How do we know this? Well, last time we pointed out how how Luke had, had written himself into the text because he joined Paul in Troas, and then he went from saying they to we, Now we see that the pronoun changed again in verse 1 of Acts 17, and it says, now, when they. So that signifies that at this point, Luke had to have stayed in Philippi, and he says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, we enter into this particular passage with all this other stuff in mind. And hold on to that. Paul and his team had left Philippi heading southwest on the Ignatian Way, that great Roman road that connected all of these European cities, at least those in in this particular area of Europe. First coming to Amphipolis, uh, 33 miles from Philippi. From there they traveled some 30 miles to Apollonia and, and finally another 40 miles to the larger city of Thessalonica which was the capital of Macedonia, a city at that time that was about 200,000 people. So it was a major city. Uh, And uh, by the way, Thessalonica exists still today under the name Thessaloniki. But there is question as to whether Paul ministered in those small towns on his way to the larger city. Well, it is here that we learn another custom of Paul's. Now, we've already learned one custom of Paul's as he travels in his missionary journeys, and that is that any major city that he would enter into, he always sought out a synagogue. And he would always go to the synagogue first because it was in his heart to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And we'll see that written for us in Romans chapter 1. So that was, of course, his main custom, but we find another custom that he continues on in his work and that is that he would evangelize and he would establish a church in the main city thus here in Thessalonica and then those of the main church 
It would be those that He teaches, those that He grooms, those that He brings up in the ministry of the Gospel, those that He establishes as, as now understanding the Word of God and being able to impart the Word of God. Those in that church would be the ones who would carry on the work of caring for those rural areas. So while we see names mentioned and we see Him passing through, it doesn't mean that He didn't care for them, but now it becomes kind of clear what He is doing. He's establishing churches in the main cities and then from these cities sends out His evangelists into the rural areas. So then in verse 2 of our text it says, And Paul, as his custom was, went into them, because we already noticed that uh, uh, he, he, he realized there was a synagogue there in Thessalonica, as it was his custom, he went into them and for three Sabbaths, and I want you to notice what it says here, for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now you want to take a, a, a pen or a, a marker and mark the, the, the statement, three Sabbaths, and then the word reasoned. And you want to kind of keep that thought in mind. And then in verse 3 it says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, it's important for us to understand this and to know this always about Paul and for us to also have this kind of heart. Paul had a heart that was for his Jewish brethren. He had a heart that his Jewish brethren would come to know Jesus Christ as their Messiah and as their Lord. So Paul's heart was for his Jewish brethren and so he went to them first. That's why he always went to a synagogue first and then to the Gentiles. And yet in many cases, there were Gentiles in the synagogues already learning about the God of Israel. As we ran into uh, Lydia, who was from Thyatira, who was living in Philippi, and Paul ran into her in a, in a meeting out there by the river as they were uh, praying and, and uh, learning about the God of Israel. And so there were many Gentiles that were very interested in this one God who was considered and called the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he comes into this particular uh, synagogue in, in Thessalonica. There are Gentiles there learning about God. And so having them all together then, he is able now to reach both Jew and Gentile in the synagogue. And, and, and one thing again that you need to understand about Paul and that is that he wanted none of them, Jew or Gentile, he wanted none of them to perish and to die in their sins. He wanted none of them to lose out in, in, in eternal blessing with Christ. He wanted them to know Jesus Christ. He wanted them to know his God and his Messiah. And we know this because, and I know we've gone over this before, but it's always good to remember that in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, or for the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, Paul is not only... Uh, expressing his heart to preach the gospel to the Jew and to the Gentile, but he's also reaching into the Old Testament, into the very prophecy of, of the prophet Habakkuk, who writes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the just shall live by faith. So he uses Old Testament to teach us his New Testament heart toward the Jew and the Gentile. And so we know now 
the kind of heart that Paul has in preaching the gospel. He wants people to hear the word. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not just for the Gentile, but for the Jew as well. And again, we have to consider there's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There's one God over all His Word. And so, Paul desires for his Jewish brethren to know Christ. Later on in the book of Romans, you can feel his heart. You can sense and know his heart for his Jewish brethren. Because he writes in Romans 9 verses 1 through 5, I tell you the truth, in Christ... I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He says, I I tell you this, I have a sorrow, a deep sorrow and a grief continually in my heart. You know, when we have sorrow and grief, normally it's because we've lost a loved one. Normally it's because we've lost someone in our life that was dear to us. And, and, And then all of a sudden, you know, we've gone from what was normal to us, you know, just living life in a normal sense, to the very fact that when somebody is taken from us, you know, we fall into this particular grief and sorrow. Paul is expressing that he had that kind of grief and that kind of sorrow over his own brethren who were still alive physically, but dead spiritually and in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in need of the person of Jesus Christ in their lives, and for them to have their eyes open to the very fact that this Jesus, who came to die for them and rose again from the dead, is the very Messiah of Israel. This was his very heart. So uh, we need to understand that about Paul here. Because we don't, want, we don't want Jewish brothers, we don't want Jewish people to think that all we ever do in the church is come down on them for getting upset at the name of Jesus. But Paul grieved in his heart, folks, for them. This is why we need to see his heart as he comes into a synagogue as he does in Thessalonica. So getting back to our text then, we're told that Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures for three Sabbaths. Now, some commentators believe that this is just a timetable of Paul's initial time in Thessalonica. In other words, three Sabbaths would equal uh, the the fact that he spent uh, at least 21 days teaching in the synagogue even though they would have probably spent a good four four to six months in that city. So it wasn't just that they were there only 21 days. Some think that, but in fact, if you know, we, we do a little deeper study, we realize that they were in Thessalonica a little bit longer than that. But uh, the fact is that Luke finds it important to let us know that he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. Now, while that may be accurate, you know, about the time spent or the fact that he's, he's, he's saying this so that we can get a picture of how long he spent in the synagogue reasoning with them from the Scriptures, uh, we need to examine more closely the reasoning itself taking place in the synagogue. That word reasoned is very key here for our understanding of what takes place in this section of, of the Scriptures. Because the word reasoned here is from the Greek word dialegomai, dialegomai from which we get our English word dialogue. Now, we know that a dialogue is a conversation, as it were, 
some kind of a, a conversation between two people. You dialogue with someone. In other words, you're talking to them. They talk to you. But when you dig deeper into the word dialegomai in the Greek, you realize that it carries with it the idea of dispute, of discussion, and an, of argument. So it is much more than them having a conversation. They are actually, you know, he, uh, Paul is actually reasoning with them in the sense that he is giving them the understanding of the Scriptures. They're answering back. They're discussing. They're disputing. They may be even be arguing. Uh, you know, uh, Jewish people themselves would tell you, well, this is what we do. You know, there's an old saying that says, you know, if you have a room with three rabbis, there's four opinions there. Just want to make sure you're awake. In a room, if you have three rabbis, you have four opinions. Okay. Wake up. Let's go. Come on. Give me some attention here. <laughs> they're, they're, so they're, they're going on in this. And Paul is showing them clearly in the Scriptures about Jesus Christ. But it's taking them three Sabbaths. And, and, the, and, and the issue is here that it's three Sabbath days, those very days when they are in the synagogue, that he is having to reason with them about Jesus Christ. Now, it brings clarity to the thought that Luke was in fact drawing a contrast between the ministry in Thessalonica and the subsequent ministry in Berea, as we shall see, see shortly in our text. But what we need to keep under consideration is the attitude of the Thessalonian Jews who had heard God's Word taught every Sabbath. They were keeping the outward requirements of the law. But they weren't searching to know God intimately. They weren't searching to know God intimately, personally. And when the Gentiles were getting saved who were all around them, hearing what Paul was saying, responding to what Paul was saying, they weren't interested in the truth as much as they were in preserving their legal way of life, as we shall see in a moment. We're going to see this. And what the Gentiles responded to was Paul explaining and demonstrating, as it says there in our text Explaining and demonstrating. By the way, the word demonstrating here literally means setting before them in word and in life. So he was demonstrating to them in word by his searching of the scriptures and demonstrating to them by his life that the Messiah had to suffer and to rise again from the dead. You see, Christians, it is much more than just kind of being somebody who, who mouths words but actually lives words lives the words of the, of the Scripture. And this was what Paul was giving to them, explaining, demonstrating, making clear to them. The Gentiles' eyes are open, their hearts are open. They're ready to receive Christ. But for three Sabbaths, Paul is, 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 uh, is explaining, Paul is, is dialoguing, Paul is disputing, Paul is reasoning in the sense of discussing and then argumentation and all of this. But what they heard was the gospel from the Old Testament. They heard the gospel from the Hebrew Scriptures. Think that Paul would go all the way back to the very beginning of, uh, of, of Genesis, or at least somewhere in the middle of Genesis when he talks about Abraham taking his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him because he, God tells him to do this. To give us a picture of God the Father sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. 
And then of course he takes him and he places him upon that altar with the wood and all. And he ties him down and he has his, and he has his knife and he's ready to sacrifice his own son. And God prevents him but brings the ram. And again, the great pictures of how Jesus takes our place on the cross for us. He takes our death for our sins for us. And throughout all of the Scriptures, He begins to explain these things. And then He comes to the Psalms and He reads the very things that Jesus Himself had said just 30 years earlier. When He says in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Why are You so far from helping Me? And from the words of My groaning. And He said these were the very words that had been prophesied by David and were now fulfilled in Jesus when He hung on the cross. And later on in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8, all those who see Me ridicule Me. They shoot out the lips. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. And we remember what everybody, everyone was saying there at the cross when Jesus was hanging. And even those, those uh, thieves and one of the thieves was saying, you know, if He's Messiah, let Him... Let him get himself off the cross and get us off here too. Jesus was fulfilling all of the things that a thousand years before had been prophesied. Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And, and we, you know, they become, you know, I'm sure they heard all the stories and they said, that's what happened to Jesus. That's what happened to this man who hung on that cross outside of the gates of Jerusalem. His hands and his feet, they pierced him. His side. They took his garment and they, and they played games to see who would win his garment. Psalm 69, I'm sure that Paul would go through much of that, but we look at one verse, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And that being fulfilled, certainly that day when that soldier lifts up his spear with a sponge filled with this concoction. Fulfillment of Scripture. And then, of course, without any doubt, Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 7. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And Paul would say these words that you wonder who they were about were about Messiah. And he has come and he has taken upon himself the iniquity of us all. It was Yeshua. It was Jesus. This Jesus, you see. Note what it says there in verse 3. This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. Paul wanted to make it real clear that it wasn't any other person that had ever claimed to be Christ, for there were many false Christs roaming even in that time and day. He said, this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. This one and only Jesus. 
And for us today, we need to realize that it is not the Jesus of the New Age movement, the Jesus that they made into a shaman or some kind of, 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 uh, of, of, of uh, conduit, you know, into, the, in, in, into a, a, another existence or whatever. Not the Jesus of the New Age movement or any number of false Christs that have arisen to deceive. Not the Jesus of the Mormons whom they claim to be the uh, Lucifer's half-brother. Not the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness whom they identify with Michael the Archangel. Not the Jesus of all of these cults and all of these beliefs and all of these systems that take Jesus out of the Scriptures and out of the things that He did for us. It is this Jesus, it says. This Jesus who went to the cross, whom I preach to you, He is Messiah. He alone is Messiah. He is the one I preach to you. And folks, it is to be our joy to reveal Jesus as He is presented in the Word of God. It is to be our joy Nothing added. Nothing removed. He alone is the way of salvation for all who believe. He was and He is the Christ, the promised and prophesied Savior. And by the way, He is the Lord. He is Lord. And He is Lord above all. You see, some people may just want Him as Savior, but before He's anything, He is Lord and Savior. This is what Paul and I should say Peter. This is what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, when he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. Do you notice? We, meet, we need to make it real clear which Jesus, this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus. Not any other Jesus. This Jesus. There's only one Jesus who alone went to the cross. It is just that one cross that matters. So let's look at the results of Paul's teaching in verse 4. The results in Thessalonica. Some of them. You know who that some is? Those are the Jews that were in the synagogue. Some of them. A small number of them really is what is indicated. Some of them were persuaded. Some. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks. So what's that saying? A great multitude of those who had heard the same preaching in those three Sundays or Sabbaths, I should say, not Sundays, but Sabbaths, which would have been Saturday. But those three Sabbaths, they responded in a great way. And then it says, and not a few of the leading women, which, which is a, you know, kind of a literary way of saying uh, a lot of women <laughs> and leading women, prominent women, who, by the way, it would have been, culturally would have been uh, Greek or Gentile, just like Lydia, who was from Thyatira, living in Philippi, a very prominent and prosperous woman who could have a house both in Thyatira and one in Philippi. And so that was part, certainly, of that particular culture of that time that they could have that freedom to do that. So that is speaking of, of, uh, of uh, Gentiles, I'm sure. What does it say? It says they joined Paul and Silas. So they came to say, we believe, we believe what you have said about Jesus Christ. And so it, it, it expresses then this conversion. So most of those converted were Gentiles. And when you read Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, you can detect a distinctly Gentile understanding and feel to those letters. He speaks to them because they're most, mostly Gentiles. And, and so the opposition that was to form now because of this, because remember there were only just a few or some of the Jews 
uh, were persuaded. And so there was an opposition that was arising, and, and, and that, it was to form, uh, be formed mostly from the non-believing Jews. So as we read on in verses 5-9, through nine, notice what happens after Paul has preached the gospel, after he has proclaimed Jesus Christ Lord and Jesus as Messiah. It says, but the Jews who were not persuaded. So this would give some indication that this was the majority then of the Jews. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. And we're not told whether those evil men were Jews or not, but nonetheless, they found evil men. And gathered a mob, it says, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and, and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, some believe that Jason was a Gentile and others believe that he was a Jew who took on a Gentile name. But whether he was Gentile or Jew, what we do know at this point in time is that he, evidently he became very uh, helpful to Paul and his team and, and then uh, uh, showed hospitality to them. Well, we'll see that in just a moment. But it says that they attacked the house of Jason and, and sought to bring them out to the people because they were staying there with Jason at the time. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here also, or come here too. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest of them, they let them go. So because of religious prejudice then, notice they became envious. Paul comes and preaches this word and all these people who have come here in support of this particular synagogue, now they're going with Paul and Silas. They're stealing. And, and we're going to need to bring a stop to that. There was religious prejudice uh, here, and, and because of that, unbelievers began to stir up a riot, throwing the whole city into a panic. The Jews resented Paul for being a sheep stealer, and I said that in quotes. <laughs> Uh, Paul was a sheep he was stealing the people away from the synagogue and, 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 and he, there was a great reason for it because they could not argue Paul they could not argue him when, when he made his defense of the faith when he made his argument when he made his reasoning they couldn't argue they could, they could argue all they wanted but, but he won you see he won the debate as it were but the people were, were stirred by that. And, and so, because they couldn't argue Paul, they rioted and they blamed him for the riot. He's bringing you know, them something against the state. He's bringing something against Caesar. He's saying there's another king. It stirs up the people even more. And then, and then they targeted one of the converts, Jason, and a few of the brethren with hostility, all because of simple hospitality. Jason shows hospitality. Because he's come to Christ. The people show hostility because they reject Christ. But in effect, what they end up doing, what do they end up doing? They end up paying tribute. Paying tribute to Paul and those who are with him. They were actually paying tribute to Paul and to those who were with him because they said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They're turning the world upside down. Paul, I'm sure, was saying thank you. Because that's what he came to do. 
You see, there was one mistake or one, one, well, one mistaken thought in, in what they were saying. You see, the world was already upside down. The world was already upside down because of sin. The world today is upside down because of sin. Because sin has distorted what God has created. Sin turned them upside down. And now Jesus, through His disciples, is turning this world right side up. That was a mistake in what they were saying, but nonetheless it was a tribute to the work of Paul, turning the world back right side up for the cause of Christ, for the cause of His kingdom. And you think, why do people fight this so strongly? Why do they fight the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why do they fight the good news of hope? And even you know those who are religious should, should know that everything that Paul used was from the Scriptures. Why do they fight these things so strongly? There's one thing that is said to us in John chapter 3 that we need to take note of. In John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, that chapter that begins with Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and telling him that uh, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says to them, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And some commentators say all of this stuff that is said from that point is, it wasn't really so much Jesus saying it. Well, you know, he could have, uh, but it was John's commentary or whatever. Either way, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, and this is what is said in verses 7, uh, I should say 19 through 21. And it says, And this is the condemnation. Notice. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. In other words, all the glory is going to go to God. We live our lives open to the world because all the glory is to go to Jesus Christ. All the glory is to go to the Lord for all the things that were ever said and done in our lives. But those who live in darkness, they love the darkness more than the light. Why? Because of their deeds being evil. And folks, we can't, we, you know, we can't hide from God. We can't hide from that light. Even if we've come to the Lord already. You know, we can't go back into the darkness and, and, and have it really make any kind of, any kind of you know, sense to us anymore. Somebody's bowling upstairs. I told them to close the lanes, but, uh, you know, because we got in there. I hope, I hope to use that thunder a little bit later to, for impact. I was going to say, where was it earlier? <laughs> The light has come into the world and men love darkness more than the light. There's the answer. These people were still in their darkness. They weren't seeing the light of the glory of Christ. They weren't seeing the light of the Word of God as it was being presented to them, explained to them, demonstrated to them. They weren't seeing it. But the ones who saw it, the Jews and the Gentiles who saw it, they responded and they received Christ. And then we're told here that, of course, they, they want to run Paul out of the city. and They want to get him out. And we know what happens, of course, that Paul would later reach them through his letters and what great letters they were. But, but you know, he also talks a little bit about this particular persecution when he writes in First Thessalonians 2, verses 17 through 20. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire, 
Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. And notice how Paul applies that now to what has taken place. That even those who have religious tendencies or, or you know, have some sense of, uh, or, of religion or some tie to religion, doesn't mean that it's in the heart. Because even Satan will use religion to bring division among God's people. And Paul noticed that and he realized that and he said, Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? Uh, but he asked the question, for what is our hope or joy or crown of joy, rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Many of them who had been in that synagogue and received Christ that day. He says, is it not even you in the presence of the Lord to be our joy? He says, for you're our glory and our joy. You're our glory and our joy. And Paul stays in touch with them through these letters. So, so after having provided bail, which was the security that it said that he had to give as a guarantee that Paul and Silas would leave the city, they sent out Paul and Silas by night. Notice verse 10. Then the brethren immediately, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So now we're coming to a place called Berea. They sent them by night. By the way, there's, there's something to, for you to understand here. Berea is about 60 miles away from Thessalonica. And to go and travel by night is the most dangerous time to travel. But it had to be done in this manner. And of course, it reminds us that when you pray, God will take care of us. But we don't want to go, un, you know, presu- or, uh, go pres- presumptuous with God. But nonetheless, you know, this is the way it had to be. And they sent him to Berea by night. It says when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now you would think, you know, some, some people would say, well, you know, Paul had trouble going into the synagogues before. Why does he want to keep going in? Because that's his heart, see. I told you, you've got to think about the heart of Paul. He had a heart for his Jewish brethren, and he needs to tell them about Jesus Christ. So he goes into the synagogue of the Jews in Berea. Now notice what happens here. Notice a great contrast from those in Thessalonica. It says these, these here were more fair-minded, and we'll get to that understand of that word in a moment these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so and therefore many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks which tells us that a lot of the Greeks prominent women as well as men but then what happens But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and they stirred up the crowds. So they're really upset with Paul, you know. So they they go another six, they go that 60 miles over there to cause problems. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to sea, to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. There in Berea they would stay and, and encourage and establish a church. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. Now God's hand is using these people to take Paul to a place called Athens and, and, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed they departed. So eventually that would happen. So all of this happens over a period of time as we've talked about before. But what we learn of these Bereans, and again, the title of this message is Be a Berean and understand what it means. What we learn of these Bereans in contrast to those in Thessalonica is that they were more courteous and more open-minded when it came to Paul's teaching of the Scriptures. Uh, More courteous just by nature, but they were were more open-minded in this particular sense. Open to what Paul was saying. Listening to what Paul was saying. But remember that in Thessalonica, Paul reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. 
In Berea, Paul went into the synagogue and immediately following his first visit, we're told that they began to search the Scriptures daily. What does that tell you about these people? That the way to define being fair-minded here is to say that, first of all, they didn't wait until the following Sabbath, but they, had, they attended synagogue on the Sabbath, but they were in the Word of God daily. So they were in readiness to receive the message of Paul because they had already been in the Scriptures. The Scriptures were precious to them. The Scriptures were important to them. So daily they sought the Scriptures. Not weekly. Daily. You see, there's got to be some stirring up here in our hearts today. Are we listening to God's Word? Are we reading it? Are we hearing from Him daily because we enter ourselves into the study and the reading of God's Word on a daily basis, not on a weekly basis? Well, let's go on. They also receive the Word with a willing, ready mind, eager to learn and to grow in God's Word. So they wanted to know more about the Scriptures. So they searched things out to test, you know, what Paul was saying was true. They were not just in the Word of God mechanically. You know, you can be in the Word of God mechanically. Some people say, I'm going to read, the, I'm going to read all the Bible in one year, and they'll do it. And maybe they start off first, you know, really interested. But before you know it, they're reading the Word of God as if it's something they have to do. And they read it and just read the words and then close the book and go off and do other things and really not get the sense of it. That's mechanical. But these people weren't reading the Word of God mechanically, but they were receiving it passionately. They looked at the Word of God in a passionate way. They received the words of Paul with an open mind and an open heart, and then they searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul said of the Messiah was true. And what was their conclusion? The result is found in verse 12. Therefore many of them, speaking of the Jews, in contrast to the few in Thessalonica, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks which means a lot of the Greeks prominent women as well as men and so Paul had not been silenced you see they thought we'll get rid of him in Thessalonica and we'll get him out of here we'll silence what he has been saying but they didn't silence him but you know what happens word travels fast and the same Jews who had caused a riot in Thessalonica They travel that 60 miles to Berea just to stir up the crowds there against the missionaries and their message of Messiah. And you see, the problem is they didn't want it, and they certainly didn't want anyone else to have it either. Do you know that that is a problem in our our society and in our country today? That there are people who don't want the gospel, but they don't want anybody else to have it, so they're doing everything they can to silence preachers and pastors and teachers of the Word of God, and to say, you can't say that here, you can't say that there, and eventually they're going to tell me that I can't say it here. I'm, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to give you the Word of God and I'm going to preach it from the mountaintops if I have to. Because that is what we are called to know, to live, to love, and to grow in. It is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And to know because we have to give testimony. But folks, don't leave me alone there. You are part of this. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You have the Word of God. You should love it passionately. You should live in it daily. And you should be speaking it and proclaiming it from the housetops. And, I, and, and let me say this, just a little added thing, but this is why this election coming up in November is important for us to be in prayer about. Because so many freedoms are at stake. And one of the major freedoms at stake is the preaching of the gospel. In a country 
that was founded upon the Word of God? Where have we gone in over these 250 years? Folks, pray. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. There's still time and there's still hope. Well, I had to throw that in there. So getting back to Paul, when they saw what was taking place with these riots in Berea, the brethren sent Paul away to Athens. And upon his arrival, he calls for Timothy and Silas to come to Athens and to assist in the work. Timothy and Silas may have stayed in Berea to assist and encourage the church as it has been established before moving on to Athens with Paul. And so this particular section somewhat comes to that end before we look at the next uh, portion, which has to do now with a preaching to the Greeks in their wisdom and their seeking of wisdom. But I want to leave you with two thoughts from the passage that we've had today. The first one, of course, comes from the fact that, you see, what Paul did was not try to change society. Paul changed hearts. And the more that he changed hearts, the more that society itself would change. Preach the gospel. Teach the word of God. Love the word of God. And then consider the contrast. The second thing is consider the contrast of Thessalonica and Berea and the the Jews that were there and what they show for us. In Thessalonica, those Jews in the synagogue had a legal approach to God's word. You see, there's an approach that we need to have about God's word. We can either have that legal approach to God's word. You see, they kept the Sabbath. They kept other outward forms of the law, but they had no daily relationship. That was their approach. There are people who claim to be Christians that have that approach today. It's legal. It's about what they do, you know, to please God for salvation. There's a problem with that. So Thessalonica is is a legal approach to God's word, but no daily relationship. Berea, on the other hand, in contrast to a legal approach is a living relationship. Berea shows us a living relationship with God's Word, a daily seeking, a daily spending time in it, a daily searching in it, a daily seeking the Lord who is revealed in it, and then in it knowing the Lord and finding Him because He first found us. And then spending that time in love toward God, in love of His Word, but most importantly, to be in love with Jesus Christ to be in love with Jesus. Folks, that's what we're here for today. We came to love Jesus Christ. And as you take this bread and this cup today, and by the way, you just have to lift one of those. There's two cylinders together. There's a bread in the bottom and there's a cup on top. Just take one and you should have both with you. Take the two cups in the one cylinder. But as you take the bread and the cup today, let's consider that. What's my approach to the, the Word of God today. What's my approach to Jesus? It is, a, is it a, a, something that I'm going to be able to please Him to save me? No. We don't try to please God to save us. But because we're saved, we live our lives to please God in service. 
for his glory, for his honor. And what's your approach today to the gospel? Is it legal or is it living? Let's have a living approach. Let's have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray.